Yeah, so Arthur Holmes, Lyle's kid. <laughs> Arthur Holmes. <laughs> Ar yeah, Arthur Holmes is one of those very famous geologists that nobody knows about. <laughs> So nobody's going to get that because it's a geology joke. It's a bad geology joke. Fantastic. Those jobs, I 100% tell you, they are not glamorous. Wear your old clothes. Do not turn up in your nice skirt and then crawl under a dirty unit looking for something on the floor. No. You need to work for us. There are sheep to lamb and there are <laughs> bales to bring in. <laughs> this episode, we're letting you listen again to Meet the Series. We talked to Gillian Mackay, the assistant curator at the Cobra Museum in Edinburgh. She's a field geologist and a museum worker. We talk about her route to the job and what she's been doing over lockdown. The Lyle Collection and Arthur Holmes also get a mention. This episode is brought to you by Voice. October of last year, which feels like ages ago now, Laura and the outreach team at the CRC put together a team of volunteers who go by the name of Voice volunteers in collections engagement and we've been brainstorming over the past few months about ways for people to get involved with all things CRC especially during Covid restrictions. So our monthly newsletter released its fifth issue at the end of May and we have social media and a blog and I've already mentioned the podcast so if you'd like to sign up for the newsletter then I believe that Martha can put a little link in the chat now. Our aim with Meet the Series is to bring people together who are interested in the same things and perhaps working on the same types of projects, maybe studying towards working in this industry or want to know more about this month's guest. So once a month we will be meeting here in the virtual world to introduce you to someone involved in collections, archives and the heritage sector. Today we have another fantastic guest, Gillian Mackay, who is the assistant curator at the Coburn Museum. And we hope that as the Meet the Series progresses, we're going to introduce you to a variety of people. So perhaps not always a member of staff at the university, maybe a volunteer or a university society or someone from outside industry. The discussion is going to end as it always does with a quick fire round of questions. And this is to remind us all that work chat doesn't always have to be serious. We are here to get to know the person as well as the job role. I am aware that we're likely still working from home, many of us, perhaps in a makeshift office or whatever it is. So I'm also aware that this is probably your lunch break. Just it's a busy and informal session Thank you for joining us. Get comfy and get tea or coffee or whatever. So we have some prepared questions followed by the quickfire. Gillian has been warned of the topics, but otherwise it is coming fresh to all of us involved. So just sit back, listen, and we encourage you to be vocal in the chat box throughout. Laura and Martha are there if anyone has any questions. So without further ado, hello Gillian. Thank you hello. so much for doing this. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm very well, yeah. Um, I'm on site today. I was just chatting with these guys earlier because, you know, we have this whole mix of in work, on site, at home, but I'm spending quite a lot of time on site at the minute and for the foreseeable future. So, um, so yeah, I'm just going to, I'll do a wee spin around. I'm actually in <laughs> a teaching room at the minute nice. out at King's Buildings. 
This is Grant Institute 304B. I have booked the room because we are going through some fossils at the minute. And it's just like with all the packing material and everything. And I've got one of the PhD students nipping in and giving me a hand every now and again. So we've got loads and loads of space. She's not in the room at the minute so, and I'm sitting well in the corner so we can be unmasked. So I think we're, we're good to go. Fantastic. Yeah, it is lovely to hear and see people back in the building and back to their norm. Before we get into the bigger questions, where did you grow up, Gillian? So yeah, so I am a Northern Irish person. I grew up uh, just outside Derry or Londonderry. And I originally grew up on a farm. So I was very into the outdoorsy sort of working lifestyle, which is probably why I was like, oh, geologists, they spend lots of time outdoors. That sounds good. But obviously now I'm in a museum. My outdoors is curtailed to actually hunting around in drawers. <laughs> Although I will say I still think of myself as a field geologist, so someone who does field work. Although my field work is mostly the dark corners of storerooms these days. So, nice. Yeah. Well, everyone has had to bring the outdoors in in this past year. It's true, How long yes. have you been Edinburgh-based? So I've been in Edinburgh since ooh, 2004. Five, end of 2005. I actually moved to Scotland before that. I did my undergraduate at the University of St Andrews um, and then I moved home briefly and then I got my PhD at the University of Edinburgh and I came here during the cohort late the end of October and I've pretty much been here ever since and scarily also have been almost in the Grant Institute all of that time. I did go and take an admin job for a little while when I was in, uh, in the School of Engineering, but I am a, I'm a sort of a long-standing King's Buildings person, not quite scarily, so yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. I was going to ask what the first job you ever had was. So very early jobs of my life were mostly manual labouring because I did farm. like farm work, yeah. I did farm work for my parents, obviously. My parents were like the sort of people, they didn't really encourage us to get jobs when we were teenagers because they were like, no, you need to work for us. There are sheep to lamb and there are bales to bring in. <laughs> so we didn't get any pocket money or anything. It was like, you have to do some work to earn some money. So I did like lots of stuff like that. I used to work at stables. I used to work in vets. I did a lot of work with animals. Um, and then when I went to uni, I used to do public engagement stuff, which I would get sort of pocket money type pay for from the uni. And then when I became a PhD student, I started doing like demonstrating and teaching. There is a there's a student in the that I know at the minute in the call, so he'll he'll understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's nice to hear. So, yeah. Off the back of everything, you're you're a combination of someone who works in museums and is also a geologist. And it's perhaps not the first job role that you would immediately think of when it comes to the museum sector. So I was wondering how do the two combine? So yeah, the job here at the university actually, it's kind of a, a mishmash because the university had like traditionally had full-time curators and then as those people retired, um, they made the role more practical. So there would have been different people looking after different parts of the collection. So there was someone who was looking after like the historical collections and the mineral collections, the, the fancy collections. And then there was a different person looking after the teaching collection. And as the staff sort of tree and joined, they, they merged those two roles together. So they, they wanted someone specifically who was a geologist or had some geological training because 
uh, one of the parts of my job, although that has reduced a bit now, was that I would have to get stuff out for teaching. So whenever people were asking for very specific types of specimen, or they would be describing like, do we have, and then insert rock description here, they wanted someone who was able to be like, yes, I found that, you know, is it, it is like an important part of the job where some people, when they're developing their teaching, they're trying to look for specimens. So you have to be able to use the language of the subject competently. You know, it's one of those things that does take a little bit of training. But um, the other parts of the job, you know, it is sort of more administrative as well. And that they, you know, you need to be able to try and keep everything organized, do a bit of background reading on the history and stuff. Um, but the, but for the job that I do, they, they they primarily wanted somebody with the subject background. And it is quite an unusual job because, you know, a lot of, I think if you're doing museums, it's that toss up between you can have someone who's more trained in the history and museum side of it, maybe from more of an art subject background. Or, you know, you can get like the person who's the scientist, but they're going to have to probably brush up on some of the history of science stuff. I mean, people often think that science and history of science are the same thing. It's it's not really the same thing because, you know, if you were going to get your leg amputated, you'd want a surgeon, not someone who knows about the history of surgery. They <laughs> might not use anaesthetic. That's how history goes. So, you know, you, you kind of have to like think about what the practicalities of the subject are and the job and everything like that. As yeah, well. bringing the theory and the practical together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You are the assistant curator of the Coburn Museum. I was going to ask what that entails, but you've kind of covered a bit of that already. Yeah, so the curator is kind of an honorary role here, one of the academics, but they actually, they're more of a sounding board if we're making changes in the museum and we need to get the academic enfranchisement going here. Whereas the practical sort of cataloging, moving stuff around, try, trying constantly to find space to store stuff. <laughs> the, the glamorous jobs, you know, uh, those are the things that I end up doing. You know, it's 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 actually it kind of works well. The academic who is the also the, the curator is Jeff Bromley, and he he's you know very aware of the collections are important. We have to look after them, so it, it's good to have someone who is engaged. But also he's very good at being like right, okay, what are the options? You explain to me from your point of view, so that we actually have a full discussion, as opposed to you know he makes the big decisions. Very he's very egalitarian, shall we say? Yeah, so it's good. Nice, nice. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the types of collections that you work with and perhaps if there were any unique challenges that come with working with these types of collections. Yeah, so the, the collection's pretty diverse. I mean, we used to have paper objects and archival stuff, but we've definitely made the move transferring that down to the main library. We think it'd be so much better. They have temperature and humidity control conditions, which we, we don't have. And they also have the paper conservators and stuff right there. So I'm definitely very in favour of trying to redistribute our collections if there's a more appropriate place in the uni that they should be being cared for. I mean, the majority of our collections are quite robust and rocky, as you can imagine. We have a lot of um, sort of like late Victorian, early 20th century mineral collections from different backgrounds as well. I don't want to be like boring, white. <laughs> minerals growing on black rock but there's there's several large collections of zeolites which are minerals which are white minerals growing on black igneous rocks which are important historically and they're a useful collection but then 
and they have like detail on provenance and everything. And then we also have this guy, James Curry. His father was a shipping magnate in Leith. He really liked a blingy sort of specimen, cabin to curiosity style. Look at my big minerals, um, which don't have great provenance, but are really beautiful and eye-catching. So as far as the collection goes, we have a real mixture of beautiful and engaging, but not necessarily scientifically high value because they're not necessarily um, well provenanced. And the slightly more not eye-catching, but, you know, scientifically well, well provenanced, you know, we can use them for various experiments. So one thing that we do quite differently to other collections in the university is that the collections do get used. So we do occasionally break a little bit off the, the not showy side of the specimens if we need a, a standard or something. And although that can be quite controversial, I mean, most of the named collections don't get subjected to that. It's more the more research-based collections. It's what the university had these collections for originally. So we sort of try and keep that. It's a resource thing mm -hmm. in the forefront of people's minds so that we can prove that the collections are, are adding something to the school. We have lots of fossils. We have comparative anatomy type teaching and we don't actively collect. I'm not sort of like going and looking for things that we would want to acquire because we also have to look after boxes and boxes and boxes of old PhD collections, rocks that academics are bringing back. If people are going to Antarctica and they're getting stuff back from there, that comes under like various bits of Antarctic Treaty. So we have a lot of stuff in storage that we're kind of obliged to keep, but it's not ever going to be something that's been shown to the public. Um, mm -hmm. It's the sort of thing that somebody might, do you have a bit of this? Can I grind it up to a powder and do an analysis on it? At which point we'll go and see if we can find it because, you know, we have also the problem where is there good documentation for this? So, you know, we, we, we're constantly trying it, there's always a scramble, I think, in museums where you have a hundred years in one building, things are shoved in corners, you <laughs> you unearth things. Yeah, so, yeah, totally. Oh, how interesting. That sounds so exciting. We've talked a little bit about this before in Meet the Series. I think Emily, with the conservation side of things, was really amongst those debates. And then Sarah and St. Celia's Hall was really about, do we play the instruments? Do we not play the instruments? So yeah. it, it's nice to hear that you've got a bit of both going on yeah i mean they're quite sort of distinct collections in some regards but there is always that little gray area you know if you have one specimen and someone's like i really need a standard you're like, oh, do we do we sacrifice a bit of this we had a, a thin section so you know um part of the teaching collection we have multiple so it'll be like a hundred rocks it's all the same thing so they all get put out the students touch them we bring them all back in again we have to disinfect them now with COVID. There's a lot of alcohol spray. Um, yeah. But we also like thin sections, you know, where a, a, a slice of rock that's polished to finer than the human hair, the light transmits through it. But, you know, for the teaching collection, you know, they're going to get dropped. They're going to have focusing the microscope when they, they hit it off the objective, it'll get broken. So, you know, we do have consumable elements of the collection. And I think that's one of those things that other museums maybe in the uni are not they're not in that situation to the same extent as we are but also um yeah like we got a thin section cut of one of our meteorites a little while ago a couple of years ago and it was 
right, how do we do this without sacrificing a lot of sample? You know, you have to have all these sort of conversations. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's sort of interesting as well because it comes into like the technology that we have in, this, in the university, how we can actively, you know, extend the lifespan of certain samples if we're actually sort of doing something that's potentially destructive. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, do you would you say that there are any preconceptions surrounding your role? Yeah, it's um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the the rules really it's really big, you know. Um, I think there is sometimes a preconception that I either do or do not know where every single item in the school is. Uh, so like it's kind of difficult because sometimes if someone's looking for a very specific thing, you know, someone will be like, ask Jillian, she'll know where it is. And then I have to be like, oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I know where that is. Uh, especially some of the older academics. We have some emeritus professors who are very lovable, charming characters. But sometimes they'll be like, I need to find the specimen. And I'm like, OK, right, when did you last see it? And one time, I swear, the answer was they had last seen it in 1976. OK, that is um, seven years before my birth. Did it have any? Do you have a, do you have a picture? Do you have a photo? No, I don't have a photo. Can you can you draw it? <laughs> because um, sometimes describing a rock is describing a rock. It doesn't have good recognisable features. Finding it could be quite difficult. So yeah, unfortunately, clairvoyancy and um, like insight into deep time are, are not powers <laughs> within my skill set. You know, I think it's like the, the usual manage expectations and people's expectations is always the, the hardest thing because, you know, it's it's a big collection. You know, it is they, they say around 130,000 specimens that includes a lot of the teaching samples. You know, it's like I, I am one person, so and and cataloging although we do it it's it's a legacy task there is there's lots and lots to get through still so this is more that sort of a job yeah well maybe as as the cataloging goes on you might find the one from 1976 who knows i might and it's one of those things that sometimes i i honestly it, it is kind of insane because i sit and go like oh no no i'm not i'm not a mind reader i can't do this but i have open drawers sometimes and <gasps> you'll have a fossil that's been broken in two and this is the other half of it. Like, I know where the other half of this is. And you, you sort of like run down to a drawer and you'll, and you'll be like, ah, ta-da. You know? So then some people are like, how did you remember where that one thing was? So it is that thing where like having quite a good memory for where you last saw something is <laughs> a good skill set to have because you might remember what it looks like, but you might not remember that catalogue number just off the top of your head. Having uh, Spending time with the collections and getting like sort of an intimate knowledge of where things are is very helpful. Um, so yeah. Nice, nice. Obviously with COVID restrictions a lot of people haven't had access to their workspace for a while. I was wondering what were you up to whilst in lockdown? So yeah, lockdown lockdown one was, um, I think we're only going with two lockdowns given in Scotland we've only really had two. Yeah. I, I sometimes listen to the radio and I'm like, wow there's been so many lockdowns <laughs> in other places. But yeah, so lockdown one and um, I, I feel a bit guilty because I kind of jumped ship before we were told to go home. 
me and my colleague were like, right, let's take some stuff home and let's practice working at home for two days and see how it goes. And then we'll come back and we'll pick up more stuff if we need to. And in those two days, they closed the uni. <laughs> Thank God you'd taken something home <laughs> though. I was like, what? So yeah, but I had actually taken home a full lever arch file. You know, we're talking full specimens. And I did the data entry for 5,000 minerals. Tick, that was a job I never thought oh. I was going to get done. Because when you're on when you're on site, students, academics, classes, public engagement, you're like doing all these things, sitting down with a ledger and being like, I'm going to do this data entry. It 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 kind of settles to the bottom of the list. I did the complete data entry for the curry collection, which meant whenever we were cataloging, we decided because so much stuff had been moved around in the past, we didn't have good um, tags where things had been put. We were like, um, well, the person before me, the person before me, before me was like, we're going to catalog again from drawers. So we'd actually got to the stage where we'd found like a deposit, a deposit, I literally call it that, like it's like as if it's, it's in the outdoors of um, curry collection, which had been in temporary storage since the late 70s. And we emptied all these boxes. So it was like, oh, I think we've got like most of the curry collection where we know what it is. So being able to do the ledger, it was really cool because I added that data to all the things that we had found and then I was able to make a separate um, page in the spreadsheet where it was like these are the things we're still looking for so it was like ah oh, now I know what I should be expecting to find like that's kind of cool because we'd never been able to do that before so I did, yeah so I did that and then to mix things up a bit because the Lyle notebooks had started being digitized um, and his handwriting's really scribbly and the archivists aren't necessarily people with like a science background. Oh, I can help you with some of the words, which are kind of science words. So he was writing a lot about monocotyledon and dicotyledon plants. And he was spelling these words very idiosyncratically, shall we say. In other words, kind of wrong. <laughs> so doing that. And I think we transcribed like two notebooks from the lot collection. And I managed to get my 5,000 minerals on. And then as we started to open up, there was risk assessments, one-way systems and labs. How are we going to have people use microscopes? Because the boring jobs like using a microscope, which you're like, oh, that's fine. You're something like, oh, you put your face up to that, rub your eyes all over the eyepieces and then breathe all over the specimens that you're looking at. Yeah. So, yeah, the boring things suddenly became dangerous. So, yeah, so I was also trying to help think through those processes that we, we use for teaching, that we use for research. So yeah, so lockdown was actually like kind of productive, like super productive for things that I had sort of thought, oh, that's like a back burner job that will never get done. Um, and I had a really cool time seeing into the Lyle collection as far as the notebooks went um, and like working a bit more closely with CRC people, because although I am part of the team, I'm I'm very much employed by the School of Geosciences. So I'm, I'm sort of a, an associate, shall we say, of the CRC as opposed to being like in the sort of direct team. So like, it was quite nice to have the opportunity, like actually all the meetings and things that I've been able to attend on Teams were things that usually like, if it's a half hour meeting and I've got to go downtown to the library, a lot of the time I'll be like, oh, I just, I'm not going to make it, you know, whereas, you know, just being able to plug in and be like, oh, I can listen to this meeting. Quite often when I'm still tidying up a storeroom or something, it's been quite nice actually. It's, you know, it's, there is benefits to being online. So I've kind of enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah, totally. And it's nice to hear that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you've mentioned it. I was wondering if you could briefly tell us what the Lyle Collection is. So yeah, so the Lyle Collection, it's actually kind of, there's sort of like backstory I feel with the Lyle Collection in the uni because 
Lyle, he was he sort of felt like he had to work. You know, he wasn't I'm landed and I can just do whatever it was. He wasn't <laughs> like that. He was he was working away as a lawyer and eventually I think he got to the stage where he was, you know, like this is damaging my health. I think I'm gonna gonna go more into my interests in geology. And he started publishing books. So although he's like not one of the sort of like theme thinkers, shall we say, in geology, in the same way as maybe the early people like Hutton, who was a famous Scottish geologist, was, um, or maybe even Hall, who was an experimentalist. Um, he did a lot of educational work and he made these, he wrote these really popular books. He's um, the Brian Cox for physics of geology in the 19th century. And <laughs> um, the books were really inspirational for people like Darwin. The situation with him was that like, though he was quite well known, his family still had his notebooks. They were still actually in the possession of the family. So they weren't acquired and the university acquired them. Now, this is not the start of the Lyle collection, so to speak, though, at the university, because in at least the 1920s, we already had some of his objects here and they were moved up to the Grant Institute um, when the building was opened in 1932. Now, the objects that we have here, some of them are geological, but a lot of them are sort of more anthropological. They're stone tools from Neolithic sites. And Lyle was very interested in also what he called the antiquity of man, so early humans. And he was also, because he had inspired Darwin, he was in correspondence with Darwin. So there's a few Darwin specimens that Darwin had sent to Lyle, namely shells. Although Lyle would have been interested in shells, it was his wife who was actually, she considered herself to be a conchologist, so a, an actual shell scientist. Um, so it's quite interesting as well because potentially, we've not gone through all the notebooks yet, but we might be able to get much more context. There's not good provenance for every single sample and the potential is that the more details will come out of the notebooks. So getting the notebooks now could really open up objects that we've held for much longer in the uni so it's a really sort of good you know collaborative uh, opportunity for like the collections here metadata because the, the, the samples that we have here you know like with the archives as well and also with COVID and stuff again I don't want to be like oh, lockdown's great we can do everything digitally but highlighted how important having like digitized collections and stuff is so uh, we're looking at things like digitizing potentially some of the objects in our collection here so that they can actually be looking at the page of the notebook potentially in future on a website do you want to see the object click here and then you could have like an object that you could turn and i think that being able to sort of do that and merge together the paper object and the physical object and have that opened public engagement in a way that's not going to damage either of those objects could be really, really cool, It'd be really good. Nice, yeah, very exciting. Having mentioned Lyle, I was wondering if you'd be able to discuss a little bit about Arthur Holmes as well. Yeah, so Arthur Holmes, Lyle's good, but I'm like, <laughs> Arthur Holmes. <laughs> Arthur, yeah, yeah Lyle's, get, Lyle's getting all the press at the minute. Arthur Holmes is one of those very famous geologists that nobody knows about. <laughs> Holmes definitely is really big for geologists. He is the person who came up with radiometric dating. So radiometric dating, again, one of those techniques that non-geologists are all like, uh, what's that? Is the process by doing sort of like a chemical analysis. And it's it's quite a, it's like, it's a, it's a complicated thing to sort of think about. Uh, Arthur Holmes actually started working on it when he was an undergraduate. <laughs> 
at UCL, putting everyone to shame <laughs> because it's such a cool thing to be doing. And also so young, I don't think many people achieve such greatness uh, in science in their in their like early years like that. But yeah, so um, what Arthur Holmes did to go into a bit of the science, first of all, you have to think about radioactive decay sorry science no my periodic table chat you, you sort of think about like the periodic table there are the radioactive elements and as they decay which is effectively shooting off like little parts of their atomic structure which is actually producing the radiation they they change composition so for example the famous one is uranium as it decays it becomes lead what you have to do what arthur Holmes thought about was like right we need to think about a mineral that wants to incorporate uranium into its chemical structure, but it definitely does not want to include lead in its atomic into its like mineral structure, into like the atomic bonding. Okay, so you know that the mineral will start off and it will have uranium in it, but there won't be any lead. And then as it decays, the uranium will break down and it will turn into lead. So then whenever you get the mineral and you measure how much uranium is it, and how much lead is in it, you know that all of the lead that was in it has to have come from uranium that was broken down. Mm -hmm. And by working out how fast things that the uranium decomposes to the lead, you can work out as a ratio how old it will have been since that mineral formed. So Arthur Holmes landed on the mineral zircon for this, the type of mineral that you want to use for this analysis. And zircon is really cool because it's actually also very, very resilient doesn't get worn away very easily um, through geological processes. So it has the potential to last a really, really long time in the geological record. Until Arthur Holmes did all this, people were sort of, you know, they were looking at fossils. They were saying, oh, we know we find these fossils and these these types of rock. They've given it like a name for the period where you would find those fossils, but they didn't know like an actual age. They weren't able to say like, oh, this was 360 million years to 290 million years they weren't able to give any numbers they were just we kind of know the order that things happened in we know that you know this name of group of rocks like the carboniferous is going to be followed by you know, this named group of rocks so they had this sort of um relative organization mm. for the geological record but no numbers and then early in the 20th century arthur holmes was like "Ta-da! i have the method <laughs> And you know, then he was able to start working on things like the age of the earth, like if you can find a meteorite, like the correct composition that you're able to do some of these types of analysis on, you can start doing things like the age of the solar system and you can just start trying to date everything, which, you know, was really exciting because we had these ideas of like how long ago we would expect things to be. It takes a long time for a rock to form. These fossils are really weird. These animals must have lived millions of years ago but there was no actual numbers so that's kind of what yeah. arthur holmes gave us and arthur holmes was working on like so many things stuff to do with earthquakes and seismicity and but you you think about the timeline of these things and you think oh wow like getting that those numbers that must have been pretty exciting and you needed to use chemical analyses it must have been quite recent but then you start thinking about right, put it in context okay he was doing this he started doing this in sort of the 1920s and 30s this became like a bit of a thing but then things like understanding plate tectonics a lot of plate tectonic stuff wasn't discovered until the 60s. And you're sort of like, oh, like that seems backwards. Like, how could we get a number and not know about earthquakes yeah. in as much detail? So it's kind of interesting as well, because when you, you sort of think about them, you think about these big ideas and you sort of realise that how 
the route that you think science is taking and the progression of what comes first is often not what you think it is. It's kind of interesting. Very and also like time. Yeah, and like accidental sort of discoveries as well, you know, whereby, yeah, like we could age the earth, but we didn't really understand plant boundaries and stuff is sort of sort of yeah. mind boggling the sort of relative youth of the subject. How exciting. And also I would add a very accessible explanation of Arthur Holmes and what he achieved as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, um, if you want to see how decorated Arthur Holmes is on the image search on the Luna pages in the geology and geologists, although there's a lot of Lyle notebook there at the minute because they're sort of putting all the digitized pages up there as well. There are images of Arthur Holmes medals and he has something like 11 medals, including the Deplins, and I always say that one incorrectly, so I apologise if that's not the right name of it, which is sort of like the Nobel Prize. Geologists, geologists don't have a Nobel Prize, but they have other other awards. But yeah, so he is one of the most decorated British geologists, and he was the Regis Chair of Geology here at the Grant Institute. So he used to just sit in the office, just at the top of the stairs. It's kind of cool to think of like, these people walking the corridors, you know, and, and me pushing my trolley covered in rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm aware that I want to have time for the audience questions. So I'm thinking as much as this is so interesting, we could talk for ages. I think we'll move on to the quick fire round and then get in some audience questions. If you guys haven't already, then feel free to put your questions in the chat now and Martha will get to them. But are you ready for the quick fire set of questions? Jane? Yeah. All right. Well, number one, what was the last book you read? Oh, uh, the last book I read. Oh, this is actually kind of embarrassing. I read Howell's Moving Castle. That is only because I had read the sort of more heavy going Volcano Lover by Susan Sontang, which is a historical book about affairs and someone who really likes volcanoes. But I would have <laughs> to say I would recommend it. It's a long book, but Howell's Moving Castle is definitely a great kids book to read. So if you want a lockdown read that's easy and enjoyable, that's definitely one. Nice one. Have you ever had late fees on a library book? I don't think I have. That might be less to do with uh, my promptness and organisation and, and more to do with the fact that I, I don't use the library very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's more than acceptable. <laughs> Ouch, burns, burns, yeah. So the Coburn Museum aside, what is your favourite museum or gallery to visit? Ooh, that is really, really hard. Um, uh, there's certain objects in certain museums that I would go and visit again and again and again. In Northern Ireland, I really do like the Ulster Museum. And there are certain objects they have there, including like a little tiny salamander brooch, which came from the Spanish Armada. It feels like it has like a really close connection as a Northern Irish person to sort of big historical events that were happening. And it's also on one of our £10 notes. So I quite like going and visiting that. But the other thing that I really like is in Edinburgh, and it's actually the Botanic Gardens, so a collection of living plants. And I strongly, strongly recommend that you go into the glass houses and you go to the bit with all the tree ferns and the horse tails, because that I consider to be the closest thing to a trip to the Carboniferous when all the coal was deposited 360 million years ago. Sometimes nice. you'll see me in the glass house being like, definitely in the Carboniferous <laughs> now. This is great, guys. <laughs> Lovely. Do you have a cafe or restaurant recommendation in Edinburgh? Ooh, ooh, that's really hard. I'm more of a person who likes to sort of get 
a quick sort of little bite to eat and go and eat outside. So I would strongly recommend the pastries from 12 Triangles. Nice. Okay, this one is maybe the most difficult. If you don't have an answer, don't worry. Do you have a terrible joke involving a rock? A terrible joke involving a rock? Yes, I kind of do. <laughs> How fast does a fault move? I don't know. A mile a night. So nobody's going to get that because it's a geology joke. But basically, a mile a night is a rock, which is fused rock powder from rocks being like crushed together and like obviously the faults whenever the, the plates or whatever move across each other and they create this ground up sort of stuff and it also sounds like a distance so it's a bad geology joke. Fantastic thank you so much you have survived the quick fire round of questions I'm going I'm going to hand over to Martha to see if we have any questions what is it looking like Martha? Gillian, you've talked a lot about provenance. What's the oldest object in the collection that you know of? So that is a good question. I just saw Aki being like, I've never heard that joke before. <laughs> so the geologist in the room enjoyed it. Sorry, <laughs> as a side. Yeah, so the oldest thing that we have in the collection, there's so many answers to that. So the, the oldest thing that we have in the collection that is geological years is probably our meteorite collection because they're about the same age as the formation of the solar system, I imagine. It's like super old. We also have things which are kind of with a human element would be our axe heads. But then the oldest thing that we have in the collection, which is more related to the history of science, is our collection of crucibles, which were made by James Hall. So he was one of the first people who sort of, so it, Philosophically in science, we've got like inductive and deductive science and most geologists are kind of de deductive scientists and that we observe and then we uh, eliminate things which would not be possible. Um, but if you're more of an experimentalist, you're more inducting science. So to sort of better understand those processes that are happening within the earth. And we have, yeah, his his crucibles of which contain glass, which was a molten rock. So like it's actually the start of the uh, entire branch of geology which is experimental petrology so that's the full range of from the geological specimen and the meteorites to like the geological specimen that some person who was an early geologist decided to make so yeah nice thanks um so we have another question do you have any advice for people hoping to get into this kind of work or similar Ooh, that is a really hard question because i was i was saying earlier i kind of feel like it was it was kind of chance that I managed to fall into this line of work. If you are a student and you're studying, I think if you want to work with science collections, it definitely helps if you have a science background. I would say trying to engage with collections in some way, like volunteering to do a bit of cataloging or even just units looking for something on the floor. It's the, it's the reality of the job. And also I think like doing public engagement and trying to uh, get an understanding of what the public's understanding of the science is also really helpful. Um, it's very easy for us to disappear off into our 
bad geology jokes that only geologists will understand. So, um, so yeah, I think like practicing those sorts of like communication skills, and getting experience, is probably the best way. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Thanks. Do you have a favorite material to work with? Ooh, that's kind of hard. That's a really hard question. I think it sort of changes. I mean, I have to be honest with you, I do enjoy, you know, doing the minerals. But I mean, depending on the mineral, you can have a, you know, whenever you sit and go like, oh, today is a day where I have to go and look at the radioactive minerals. I would say that is not my favorite job because you're sort of, these are, you know, they're not very nice things to work with just because they're potentially a little bit hazardous if, if they were to be mishandled. Yeah, I enjoy like working with the specimens directly. It does make me feel like a proper geologist organizing the teaching collections. Man, this will be so easy once term time comes around, make my job, my life easier. But I do, I've, you know, over the last year, I've done a lot of get the chance necessarily to do whenever there's more people about. And it's quite nice to have the satisfaction of a job being done and being like, wow, I've entered all that and I'm not going to have to necessarily do that again. Wow, I have a description of the mineral from the mineral and I have information from the ledger all in one place so i have to be honest with you like although the administrative side is, side is quite dull there's a great deal of satisfaction have that done and know that your record is good so yeah definitely different parts of the job appeal to different parts of the personality <laughs> nice so aki asks how did you manage to develop knowledge in a variety of fields in geology i feel geology is still quite a big subject for example paleontology and igneous petrology are very different Oh, they, yes. And I would say, Aki, you have pointed out my two great weaknesses because I very much feel like a sedimentologist. Sandstones, yay! <laughs> Which most other geologists do not enjoy. Like I would say, I, I didn't really feel like I was a mineralogist before I started this job, but being a more field-based geologist is, as a base level skill, is is really good because you develop descriptive skills and I think that's like the thing that you need to start off with anything and then being able to describe stuff you sort of gain familiarity with just the materials through time there are loads and loads of minerals that I probably had never seen before and now if you put them in front of me I'd be like oh yeah that's definitely you know pyromorphite or mimetite or the minerals that you never come across when you're an undergrad just because you've sort of developed that familiarity with them they're a familiar old friend it's it's kind of strange Paleontology, I'm still working on. I would say my descriptions of paleontology are still really super basic. You know, there's a lot of Googling you can do. Um, quite often I'll describe a drawer of stuff and then I'll maybe go and beg off someone who knows more, some of the some of the paleo PhD students who have more background in that. Today, whenever I said like a friend's going to come, it's going to be Paige Polo. She's one of the vertebrate paleontologists, but she's got a good eye for some of the stuff we're dealing with at the minute, which is fish. And yeah, it's just being able to speak to the right people. I would say that definitely it's a great benefit doing this job to be in the department. I mean, as much as it would be nice to be down in the library with the other main body of the collections people, having um, the igneous petrologists and the paleontologists here is so helpful because sometimes, yeah, I do just open a drawer and I'm like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and then I sort of go and track down the person who's knowledgeable. But yeah, I mean, having a good memory helps and, you know, just persisting. At it. It's definitely what's required. Nice, oh, thanks. Um, so someone's asking if the museum is open again to the public at this point. Yeah, we're in a kind of a grey area at the minute. So 
the building is technically open to people who are affiliated to the university, um, which would include all of the students and staff, but we are not encouraging people to come into the building at the minute. All our um, access to specimens here really are, is done by appointment. I mean, you can come into the building and you can walk around and you can look at the cabinets. We do have some display cases in the corridors. Um, we aren't, I haven't been turning the lights on on a daily basis at the moment because, we, because we're not expecting visitors to be in the buildings. Normally, we'd be like, people can come in and they can have a look around and if they want something specifically, they, they need to get in touch and just say, you know, can I, can I have a look or I'm interested in talking about this specific mineral or set of specimens and then I would give a tour or I would get the stuff out and meet you to speak about that. But at the minute, yeah, I have to say we're in this kind of grey area where we're kind of open and not open. So I'm not recommending that people come to the building at the minute until we have a more firm steer, because obviously the messaging is still very much stay away from work. Don't be mixing with people willy nilly. Um, so, yeah, but if somebody had like a pressing thing that they were interested in or they wanted to ask questions, we could even like have a discussion in Teams, send an email. I'm able to distribute specimens potentially online. Um, I did have an artist come the other day to look at some specimens and film a recording so that they could do a workshop and now they have that recording live um, that they can reuse again and again. So again, like we're looking that if people are visiting, it's sort of like on a digital thing to to be able to open up engagement more rather than just a case by case visit. Yeah, that sounds fair enough. Uh, do we know much about how the meteorites got into the collection? Yes, yeah, so some of the meteorites are part of the Curry collection. James Curry, who I mentioned earlier, he liked a blingy specimen. And some of them, I think, have been collected at other points. The meteorites are not well catalogued. I have now obviously got the inventory from the Curry ledger, and that was one of the jobs that I was like, I'll definitely get that done when I'm back in the building. <laughs> Unfortunately, sanitizing labs became slightly more important, and I haven't gotten around to that yet. But yeah, that's like one of the, the like it's high on the things to do, actually check which meteorites that I've done the transcription for are there and then which ones are potentially additional meteorites that we maybe need to do a bit of work on. I think a lot of the meteorites that we have are probably have been, you know, they, they'll have come from dealers because they have a very international provenance, shall we say. Uh, definitely the meteorites that we have in the display case and the ones that people will see the most of. Um, there, there, are, there are three which have toured about a little bit. They've been on display in the main library and they've gone to the art college for talks in the past. It's Gibeon, which comes from Namibia, Emilac, which is a Chilean meteorite, and Allende, which I think is Mexican. And those, you know, like they'll, they, they haven't um, sort of come here by accident. They've been acquired, but I, I'm not, I'm not able to say with any great specifics of who did that acquisition. Allende potentially was bought for, um, like as an academic sample, because I think Allende meteorite only actually fell in the 1960s, um, and it's actually one of the best studied meteorites because its fall was observed and it was large enough that they had lots of specimens. Um, and it's a it's a chondrite, so it's like a stony meteorite. So it's one of the ones that we use as like a it's 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 one of those meteorites that like they take bits of it and they grind it up all the time because they use it as an analytical standard for other research. Yeah, I should I should be getting my thinking cap on and doing some tracking down on that. But you know, all the other all the other tasks, I need to finish these fish and <laughs> I'm supposed to be doing an archival review, so like the poor meteorites are gonna get bumped down the list as as other jobs come up. <laughs> 
Well, thanks for answering everyone's questions. I think that's probably all we've got time for. If you have any more questions, we can send them via email to Gillian. Um, so please feel free to send any. But I'm going to hand back to Lily now. OK, thank you. Magic. Yeah, thank you so much for all your questions today. Thank you for being here. It was so fun while many of us are still working remotely that we get to come together like this and it's been a great hour. So everything's just been so interesting. We could have chatted for longer. But before we all go, on behalf of myself and Martha and Laura and everyone, thank you so much, Gillian. It's been fantastic to meet you officially in this context to gain a little insight into the type of stuff you do. Yeah, it's been really good. Thanks, guys, for calling. I hope that you join as an audience member for future ones. Most importantly, thank you for all your care and enthusiasm for the questions and the conversation. We also want to thank each and every one of you for attending. This is a reminder that we have plenty of things coming up at the CRC that the fantastic group of voice volunteers are working on. So we will keep you posted on newsletters, on podcasts, on Meet the Series. Keep an eye on social media for updates. Uh, have a great rest of your week all. Thank you again, Gillian. Thanks Take so much, care, guys. Gillian. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to We've Got History. The guest was Julian Mackay. This was an episode of Meet the Series from the CRC. The live event took place on June 10th, 2021. Thanks to Laura Beattie and the team of volunteers behind Voice, Catherine Alexander, Connor Wimblett, Daisy Collins, Evie Stevenson, Lily Mellon, Martha Brownhill, and Tessa Rodriguez. This episode was hosted by Lily Mellon. The guest was the assistant curator at the Coburn Museum. The Q&A session is hosted by Martha Brownhill. Episode edited by Lily Mellon. Cover art by Louisa Bree. Musical Stings by Chris Murdoch.